The Sermon on the Mount is a series of lessons based on God's law for living as kingdom citizens. Within this sermon, Jesus presents us with the values and standards of his kingdom. Though living in this present world while awaiting the coming of the kingdom, Jesus expects us as his followers to adopt the ethics of his kingdom. Jesus began by laying out eight characteristics of kingdom citizens. First, we must be poor in spirit. We must acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. We must also mourn or sorrow over our sin and approach God in repentance. We must be gentle or humble, submitting to Jesus' authority as Lord. We must also hunger and thirst for righteousness. In submitting to the Lord Jesus' authority, we must seek to conform our lives to his law and practice his righteousness in the world around us. We must also be merciful, showing compassion towards others, especially those who have hurt us. We must be pure in heart, displaying integrity and transparency in our dealings with others. We must also be peacemakers, working to resolve conflicts, reconciling individuals to God and others. And finally, we must be ready to suffer persecution. Obedience to King Jesus will result in opposition. It will result in slander. It will even result in persecution because his values and standards conflict with the standards and values of this world. Now, many of us will react to this opposition, slander, and persecution by isolating ourselves from the world. That seems to be the modus operandi of Christians. However, this is not what Jesus wanted for the citizens of his kingdom. Jesus uses two metaphors, salt and light, in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, to depict the kingdom citizens' influence in the world. Instead of retaliating against the world, instead of rebelling against the world, Jesus calls us to serve the world by influencing it. By influencing it. And so as we consider Matthew 5, 13 to 16, we're going to consider the kingdom citizens' influence on the world. Using these two metaphors of salt and light, Jesus draws a line of demarcation between the citizens of his kingdom and the world's citizens. Jesus refers to us as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Here the terms earth, gay, and world, cosmos, are used mononymically to refer to all humanity, i.e. the citizens of this world. That kingdom citizens are to be salt and light to the world citizens demonstrates the distinctive nature of the two. And that distinction will be addressed more specifically in the verses dealing with salt and light. We live in a day when some believers want to blur the lines between the church and the world. And others want to isolate themselves from the world totally. And so Jesus' admonition to be salt and light will be jarring. Underscoring that both worldliness and isolation are condemned, we see here that we are called to be the salt of the earth and the world's light. Believers, we must be in the world, but not of the world. We must separate from the sin of the world, 
but to continue to live in the world to reach the people of the world. As kingdom citizens, we live in the world, but we live according to the values and standards of God's kingdom. So as we consider the kingdom citizens' influence on the world, we're going to see in verse 13 that we influence the world by being salt. Verse 13 of Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The first way you and I influence the world is by being salt. You are the salt of the earth. Now to modern interpreters, salt is viewed as something that is used to season or flavor food. Hence, many Christians view the world as tasteless and that they must make the world more palatable towards God. Applying this modern use of salt to the text not only does injustice to the text, but it results in the wrong application. The meaning of salt, halas, in the context of Matthew 5 must be understood according to the culture of the day. Salt was a precious commodity in the Roman world. Soldiers were paid in salt, hence the phrase, worth one salt. The Latin term for salt, sal, and the Latin term for payment is salarium. The English term salary derives from the Latin term salarium. So payment was in salt, again underscoring the preciousness of salt. Before modern refrigeration, salt was used to prevent bacteria from poisoning food. As such, it was a purifying agent. 2 Kings 2, 19 and 21. Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, now the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new jar, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. He went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from there death or unfruitfulness any longer. Salt was also used to preserve food from petrification by drawing out the blood from the meat. Considering the amount of salt needed to preserve meat, the Jews would not have used it as a food enhancer. As a food preserver, salt was critical for bloodless sacrifices. Leviticus 2.13, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering, and all your offerings you shall offer salt. Because salt enables people to preserve meat perpetually, it became the symbol of a covenant's permanence. Numbers chapter 18 and verse 19, All the offerings of the holy gifts which the Son of Israel offered to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and your daughters as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendants with you. 2 Chronicles 13.5 Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? That the earth needs salt implies humanity is morally decayed. Again, salt purifies and prohibits decay. 
Jesus admonished us as kingdom citizens to be salt in order to combat the moral decay of society. Previously, God established specific or fixed specific social structures to curb and impede society's moral decay. He first established the institution of family in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over everything that moves on the earth. He then established human government. Romans 13.1, every person has to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, God has established the church to serve in that role as well. The church is the most significant social structure today to hinder moral decay because it comprises redeemed individuals who possess the Holy Spirit. You see, like salt, we are to purify and preserve society by confronting corruption and removing the impurities of sin. It means as well that we should be collectively establishing social structures that engender justice, dignity, and equality for all. Sadly, believers, especially within fundamentalism and evangelicalism, have avoided their responsibilities to such ministries. Some even repudiate such ideals. And I say to that, woe to you who fail to confront corruption, who fail to denounce immorality, and who avoid the responsibilities to promote justice, dignity, and equity for all. Sir Frederick Catherwood well said, to try to improve society is not worldliness but love. To wash your hands of society is not love, but worldliness. Jesus again issues a warning. If the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Now Jesus sets forth this warning about tasteless salt as a third class conditional clause implying that this is a future potential for believers. The verb had become has become tasteless, moreno, can be rendered as to be defiled. If the salt has become defiled, how can it be made salty again? Further, it derives from a verb meaning to be foolish or stupid. The idea, it seems, is that saltless salt is foolish or stupid. Now, pure salt or sodium chloride is a stable chemical compound that does not lose its taste or purpose. So did Jesus err in saying that salt could lose its taste or purpose? Again, the answer is found in understanding the production of salt in the time of Jesus. In the ancient Near East, salt was mined from the marshes around the Dead Sea. The white rock containing sodium chloride, i.e. pure salt, would be mingled with other substances such as calcium oxide, i.e. lime, when it was mined. Due to the humidity in the region, the sodium chloride would often leach out. If the salt leached out, then when the rock was crushed into powder, it would look like salt, but be nothing more than lime. Tasting the powder would confirm that it was not salt, and as such was defiled or worthless to purify and preserve meat.
It looked like salt, but it was not salt. It was, as Jesus said, salt that was tasteless. Or in modern terms, it was lime. Since calcium oxide or lime was useless for food, it was used on the roads and rooftops. Hence Jesus' statement, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now why would they throw lime on their roads or rooftops? Lime was used on dirt roads because it dried out the dirt, making it compact and preventing muddy and ruddy roads. It was used on dirt roofs, again, because it dried out and compacted the dirt and prevented the roofs from leaking. The flat roofs in Judea and the surrounding areas were places where children played and large groups gathered. Hence, the worthless salt, i.e. lime, was trampled underfoot, even on the rooftops. Jesus' point in this warning is that if believers are influenced or contaminate it by the world's impurities, they will lose their purifying or and preserving purpose. That is, the church will fail to impede humanity's moral decay. John Stott states, for effectiveness, the Christian must retain his Christ-likeness as salt must retain its saltiness. Friends, if you look and act and talk like unbelievers, you are useless in holding back the moral decay of this world as calcium oxide or lime is in purifying and preserving meat. In Colossians 4, 5-6, Paul admonished us to conduct ourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Being salt means that you and I, believer, must conduct ourselves wisely with the world. They need to examine this in your own life. Do you conduct yourself wisely? How does a kingdom citizen conduct themselves with others? According to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, and 9, our conduct should be merciful, truthful, and peaceable. Conduct involves not only our actions, but our attitudes and our articulations. Our speech must be seasoned with salt. That is, one's words, your words, my words, should purify and preserve. Too often salty words are viewed as angry, bitter words that are spoken in retaliation against one another. But the scripture says that salty words should be gracious rather than profane. Ephesians 4.29 Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Salty words are words that build up and make for peace. Mark chapter 9 and verse 50 Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, what will you make it salty again? Has, have salt in you and be at peace with one another. It must also be emphasized that to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men describes the world's response to believers who do not function as salt. You see, the world rejects the church. Why? Because the church fails to push back 
against immorality. When we fail to be salt, we are incapable of purifying or preserving society. Now let's take stock of the growing moral decay of society in the United States. We can only conclude that the church has failed to be salt in this society. The church has invested resources and time in appealing to the world by looking like the world. It has compromised with the world in order to avoid persecution. And in doing so, the church has failed the world. We have not purified society. We have not preserved society. And because we as a church have no purifying or preserving purpose, we have been cast out into the street like lime. We are being trampled upon because of our own ineffectiveness. Perhaps... We have lost our purifying and preserving purpose because as kingdom citizens we have lost contact with our king. Moving along to verses 14 to 16. Kingdom citizens influence the world by being light. The second way we influence the world is by being light. Let's look at Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, the second way we influence the world is by being light. You are the light of the world. Now, before we can plumb the depths of this statement, we must first determine to which light Jesus refers. In 1 John 1, 5, it declares that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Now, friends, God is not a light or a type of light, but the light itself. All light or energy comes from Him. That is, all energy in the universe, which must have a cause, originates in God. Light not only describes God's nature, but is also a common metaphor in the scriptures to denote his holiness. Darkness, scotia, is a symbolic reference to sin. The true nature of light is to dispel darkness. As light, there is no darkness or sin in God, and his holiness exposes sin. Interestingly, in Jesus' day, the Roman senator Marcus Tilius Cicero declared Rome to be, quote, the light of the world and the citadel of the nations. However, Jesus declared in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. By claiming to be the true light of the world, Jesus asserts two truths. One, that he is the holy God, and two, he is the source of spiritual light. The Old Testament prophets declared that Yahweh said to his son, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 49 verse 6. 700 years later, Simeon the priest held the incarnate son of God in his arms and blessed him by quoting from Isaiah 49 and verse 6. My eyes have seen your salvation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 
Luke 2, 30 and 32. Years later, when Paul stood before King Agrippa, he declared that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentile. Acts 26, 23. As the light of the world, Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom to both Jews and Gentiles to expose their sin and dispel its darkness. Now returning to John 8, 12, Jesus promised two truths to those who follow him. He who follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. The term walk, peripateo, refers to one's conduct or behavior. Hence, to walk in darkness, then, is to behave sinfully or sinfully conduct one's life. Christ followers, that's you and I, believer, we will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, when you and I receive the gospel of the kingdom, we will reflect the light of Jesus. Are you reflecting that light? In essence, we're like the moon, believer. The moon has no natural light of its own, but rather reflects the light of the sun. As we, believers, reflect Jesus' light, we too are the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14. However, heed this warning. We must not allow anything such as sin to come between us and Jesus that would eclipse our light. Now Paul also made this same application in Acts 13, 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, quote, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now it's interesting that Paul quoted Isaiah 49, 6, a distinct messianic prophecy and applied it to his and Barnabas's gospel ministry, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. As well, Paul admonished us in Philippians 2.15 that we should be above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we appear as lights in the world. You see, Paul understood that by living out and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, we would shine with the light of Jesus and dispel the darkness of sin. Just as every kingdom citizen has the responsibility to be salt and impede the moral decay of society, so too we must be light and shine forth the gospel to, so to dispel sin's darkness. And while to modern interpreters the salt and light metaphors may be distinct, they're actually related. According to Talmud, the Talmud in Shabbat 6.10, quote, it is permitted to put a lump of salt in a lamp to make it burn brightly. So when you and I act as salt in the world, it will make our light shine brighter. brighter. Now Jesus follows his affirmation of our responsibility to be light with two illustrations. First he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. Now, across from where Jesus was teaching was the mountain city of Tzfat. According to the Tractate Rosh Hashanah 2.4, fires would be ignited throughout mountain cities like Tzfat to announce the new moon, marking the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets, i.e. Rosh Hashanah. 
these cities of fire could be seen for miles. And just as those cities could be seen by all, so too we must reflect Jesus' light to anyone who can see us. Second, Jesus says, Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Now, in the Jewish culture, homes are typically composed of a single room, one room house. Their homes were illuminated by small terracotta oil lamps. These lamps could be carried around, but were often placed on a stand to provide illumination to all within the house. Hence, we are to share the light of Jesus to everyone with whom we have contact. Are you doing that? Are you sharing the gospel with everyone with whom you have contact? Now, a candle hidden under a basket does no good because it cannot be seen. Now, this basket, modias, was a container used to measure out a peck of grain. Lighting a candle only to hide it in a container used for measuring grain is as ridiculous as trying to hide a mountainside city lit on fire. Furthermore, candles are not to be hidden under one's bed or in a cellar. Mark 4.21, And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? Luke 11.33, No one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. See, believer, as we reflect Jesus' light, we must not conceal our true nature as light reflectors or bearers. Well, how is it that our light is concealed? Your light is concealed when you sin or compromise with worldliness. In Jesus' day, there was a group known as the Essenes who referred to themselves as the sons of light. In order to protect themselves from the world's influence, the Essenes isolated themselves. Now, on the surface, such an action appears noble. It is the exact problem with which Jesus dealt. Instead of being sons of light, as they claimed, and shining a test, being a shining testimony of God's grace, they covered and hid themselves. A hidden light does no good to anyone in the dark. Like a mountainside city on fire or a candle in a house, believer, you and I need to reflect the light of Jesus. We must display in word and deed the truth of Jesus as set forth in the gospel. In doing so, we will provide counsel and direction to those stumbling in darkness. Matthew 5.16 reveals that the light of Jesus, reflected by believers, will be seen in their good works. Paul stated in Ephesians 2, 9-10 that while people have been saved through faith, not as a result of works, they have been saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. See, Paul's point is that we have been saved to do good works, kalos ergon. Such works were prepared beforehand, proetuimazo, or in eternity past. And furthermore, we are expected to walk peripateo or behave in conformity to these good works. What then are these good works established in eternity past to which we are to conform our behavior? In Titus 2.14, Paul states that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed or ergon work 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good works. Kalos ergon. The term deed and deeds translates the Greek term ergon, otherwise translated as works. If we have been saved from every lawless deed to be zealous for good deed, then it stands to reason that the good deeds are the opposite of lawless deeds. Hence, good deeds or good works are those things which conform to God's law. James states that these good works are acts of love towards others that display one's faith. In James 2.14, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? The lack of works to which James referred explicitly are caring for the helpless as demonstrated within the following illustration from James 2, 15 to 17. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Hence, being the light of the world does not mean simply preaching the gospel, but living out the gospel of the kingdom. It is not sufficient for you to merely talk. You must give evidence of the gospel in your behaviors towards your fellow man. The good deeds, then, to which Jesus refers, are those visible deeds of compassion towards others. The integrity of the gospel and your, citizen, your credibility as a kingdom citizen are directly tied to your deeds of mercy and compassion. Ask yourself, how receptive will a starving person be to the gospel's call to repent and believe? First, feed their belly, then present the gospel. A starving person will be more apt to hear with a full belly out of gratitude for the kind deed. When people see your good works, they will in turn glorify your Father who is in heaven. The verb glorify, dagsaso, means to recognize or honor God for who he is and what he's done. That is, they will honor God by repenting of their sin and believing the gospel. Note that when Jesus states your Father, he denotes the intimate relationship which exists between Yahweh and the citizens of his kingdom. King Jesus wants you to know that you are not simply subjects, but children, and even sons and daughters. We are more than mere servants. We are his family. And this is the first of 45 times in the Gospel of Matthew that Yahweh is referred to as Father. Now some of you may be struggling to balance the command to let your light shine before men with the command of Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Without delving too deeply into Matthew 6, the difference between the two commands revolves around who receives the glory. In Matthew 5, 16, believers let their lights or good deeds be seen so that God is glorified. In Matthew 6, 1, it prohibits believers from using their good deeds to be noticed. In other words, Matthew 6 involves humanity getting the glory, whereas Matthew 5.16, Jesus calls us to live in such a way that God is glorified. My friends, as kingdom citizens, we are to be agents of redemption, called by Christ to influence the world as salt and light. Note that in both statements, Jesus declared, you are salt and you are light. The pronoun you is in the emphatic position. He is stating that what we are, not what we might become. We are salt and light. 
By being salt, you can arrest or impede the moral decay of the society. That is, we can stop the spread of immorality. But you cannot be salt by hiding in your places of worship. Salt is spread on the meat to preserve it, and so we must spread ourselves upon society to keep it from spiraling any further into depravity. And believer, you have no place of being, of being angry or despondent with the growing moral decay of society when you have acted as lime instead of salt. Being salt means that we must confront corruption, denounce immorality, and promote justice, dignity, and equality. By being light, we must dispel the darkness of sin. We must proclaim the gospel in both word and deed, rescuing those blinded by sin and entrapped in Satan's kingdom of darkness. Too often, though, believers isolate themselves and in doing so have hidden themselves instead of shining forth on the mountainside or in their own homes. As well, believer, beware. Do not cover up your light with sin or compromise with worldliness. You are the salt. You are the light. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, we have come before you as citizens of your kingdom and asking you to help us be what you have made us, salt and light. Lord, as we behave as salt, may our light shine more brightly. May we be that tool in, at your disposal that hampers or impedes immorality. And may you be that light that will dispel darkness. Not only in what we say, but what we do, that people might see the gospel. That they might receive the engraved word which is able to save their soul. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.